Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 101 of the Corona Diaries. Go on, you can exhale. How lovely. How lovely. It's going to take longer to introduce them now because I've got to put 100 and in. Oh, God. I can cope. Yeah. My, gonna... my, my years of pearl diving will come in handy. We said we wouldn't mention that. No, I know. We said we wouldn't mention that. I know. Um, it's, a, it's another special episode. <laughs> People aren't expecting a special episode because our last special episode went yeah. down really well. She stands up when she plays the piano. She does indeed. Yes. She does, yes. That's a great song, by the way. It, I don't yeah. care if, if people out there don't think it is. It is. It's a great song. Crewcast. You know what I'm <laughs> going to say. <laughs> the fastest one ever, three minutes in, and we've got a crewcast. Right. <laughs> Lovely. Well, Lovely. at least th- th- that might be a bit more straightforward than the usual. What, than know, chasing cars? Than the rigmarole. Right. Yes. Um, So we just got over the excitement of 100. What a a great episode. What a great chat Mike is. Everybody loves Mike. Everybody loved him, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's true. Um, There's a T-shirt. Everyone loves Mike. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go with that. um... Um, And then we've got something else special for today, but we're not going to tell you about just yet. But we have got something special lined up for today as well. Well, someone... Yes, someone. It's like we've He's been more prepping. of a one than a thing, isn't he? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, but even, I was trying to keep it in a little bit of... Even in his current state. I was trying to keep it fluid. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what we're going to do, because it kind of it will hang together better, we're not going to tell you about that now. So there's going to no. be a reveal in about 25 <laughs> minutes. Except it won't be 25 minutes for us, it'll be about five minutes for us, but about 25 minutes for you. Yes. Now stick with this because it's really, it's really quite simple to understand. Because we've in a minute a we're going to go to a diary. We've, we've put a sheet over him like a budgie's we, cage. Yeah. No, That's how they do cars now, isn't it? If you buy a new car, oh, yeah. they put a sheet over it. Oh, do they? Yeah, and you oh. go in and they, and they, they reveal the sheet. They take the sheet off in the middle of the showroom. Oh. oh I don't well, know that's... why they do that because you've just you've ordered the thing, you've picked it, you've picked the colour, you know exactly what it looks like. Why do they sit there anyway? By the by, so we're going right. to do diary first. Yeah. Um, which will tee up our special thing that we've now established as a person. <laughs> right. Are you all with this? It's a bit, it's a bit early I, on Monday morning for this, isn't it? I'm, I'm barely with you, and yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> you're in it. Yeah, yeah, go on then, go on. Right, okay. Go on. So you're going to do a bit of diary, and it's a special right. piece of diary. And it's a piece it of is. diary, to be fair, you've read a lot of times as well, isn't it? I guess I have read it a few times over the years, yeah. Gigs and whatnot, because it's been part of the yeah. of the the natural set for quite a while, hasn't it? Or on odd occasions, mm. was it? It yes. was in the first shows, wasn't it? The very first ones you did, quite possibly. Ones, wasn't it? Was it? 
Yeah, I mean, I can't remember any of that. Right, okay. But I, I imagine, I mean, I know, I, I remember that I have um, mm. read read it out. It's one of those, I mean, I've had one of those lives where every now and again, something extraordinary just falls into my lap. Um you know, which which is either because a song in, in, inspired it, or a piece of music inspired it, or because the the thing falls into my lap that inspires a song. Mm. So one one way or the other, and uh, as a consequence of that, I've I've ended up meeting people that I'd only seen on on the news when I was a kid, which has been quite extraordinary, mm. or. Uh, or I've met people who I've I've seen on the news. You know, in the case of Paul Barney from Estonia, he, he was on the news after I'd met him. Um, so that's been that's been remarkable. Just just uh, funny little coincidences, really. They do seem to follow you around. Yes. Hmm. Anyway, without any further ado, let's go to this bit of diary. Um, Okie dokie. Which is which is a very special day. It's quite a long piece of diary. Uh, mm-hmm. I've read it this morning. Actually, it's a, it's a, it is a very, very great bit of diary. It's one of the classic bits of your diary, I think. Actually, if I'm being honest, um, do you want to do you want to reveal where it is, what it is? Yes, I got I got a I got a call or a message. Um, I think maybe, was it Rothers got the message, but we, we we got a message from a chap called Bill Smith, who. Um, was up in the Lake District, busy fishing in Lake Coniston. Um, but he was he was fishing for quite a large fish, and quite 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 a quite a quite a deep fish as it as it goes. And um, yes, he was fishing for the bluebird, and he, and um, I'm sure he'll tell you all about it in a minute because he's going to be here with us today. Um, so Rothers and I drove up to Coniston, I think the night before, and spent the night somewhere in the, the, the Glen Ridding, Glen Ridding's Hotel, which, try as I might, I, can't, I can no longer picture in my mind. I can picture the Black Bull, no problem, but the Glen Ridding's has, has faded away. Uh, but we, we, we stayed there and then we drove over to, to Lake Coniston the following morning and, and we we're, we're met by Bill and we uh, we were privileged to witness an extremely auspicious moment and that will be the diary reading which will be coming literally about now <gasps> here it comes Thursday, 8th of March, Coniston. Woke up at 8.25 in room 11 of the Glenridding Hotel, Ullswater. I had booked a morning call for 8 o'clock, which I hadn't received. No wonder, I had unplugged the phone. Dope. I was supposed to be downstairs at 8.30 to leave for Coniston with Steve Rothery. I bungled around, bouncing off the walls, trying to get dressed and shower at the same time. The hot water took an age to come through. I really couldn't face a cold shower this morning. 
I arrived downstairs at 8.45 and managed to make it into the breakfast room before Rothers appeared, announcing that Coniston was further away than we had originally thought and that we must leave immediately. Downed a quick coffee and smuggled a plate of toast past the receptionist and into the car. We sped away through the massive hills, past sheep dyed pink and then orange, on the steep dry stone-walled moorland of the magnificent Kirkstone Pass, on our way to Ambleside, where we passed a shop called The Home of Football, before turning right for Coniston. We arrived in Coniston around 9.30am and stopped to ask directions to the boathouse where Bill Smith had arranged to meet us. At the top of the road that descends to the lake, we were stopped by a stony-faced policeman who told us we could go no further. Tense moments passed whilst we tried to convince him that we were official guests of the dive team. He was supposed to have a list of car registration numbers, but if he had one, he didn't bother looking at it. Eventually, he reluctantly let us through, telling us we would probably be turned back at the next roadblock. Miserable bugger. We arrived at the next checkpoint and were waved straight through to the car park by the lake, where Bill Smith joyfully bounced up to meet us, already inside his wetsuit, saying, Hello, what kept you? Once again, I was struck by his physical resemblance to Marillion's former singer, and the irony that he probably had a greater right to the nickname. I should explain, Bill's a Tyneside engineer with a passion for diving. He had often previously spent his spare time diving on Second World War shipwrecks and using new technologies to see and to dive at ever greater depths. A few years ago, he heard the Marillion song, Out of This World, a song inspired by Donald Campbell's fatal water speed record attempt on Coniston Water in January 1967. And the song set a fire in him, a quest to go to Coniston, thought to be bottomless in the 60s, and used new remote-operated technologies to locate and hopefully retrieve Bluebird. He has done just that. Down at the lakeside, there were about 50 people, mostly TV, radio and press, clutching cameras and microphones, and all set back from the lake by a rope which was being monitored by police. Bill marched through the police line, beckoning us along behind him, past bemused officials, to the end of the jetty, which looked out 20 metres to a large barge with a crane arm swinging out over the water. Bill told us that he had towed the Bluebird from its original crash location this morning at 5am and that they were making ready to bring her to the surface here so that she could be manoeuvred onto a trailer which would tow her to the shore. As Bill had decided to make Steve Rothery his official photographer, Steve set about making his cameras ready to capture the amazing events about to unfold, crouching low on the end of the jetty while I leant against a post, occasionally scanning over my shoulder at the media scrum roped off up the beach. I'm sure a few of them were wondering who the hell we were. Little did any of them know that I was the one who had started all this, having written the words which led to the song, which led Bill to spend the last four years determinedly trying to find the bluebird. I was introduced to Michaela, a girl in green Doc Martin's boots, who was the roving reporter for the Westmoreland Gazette. 
Bill had obviously decided she was groovy enough to be allowed forward from the throng of national media to the end of the jetty. The Westmoreland Gazette is based in Kendall, where I was born. I told her I was born at Helm Chase Hospital, which she told me is under threat of closure at the moment. It's not the same place I was born. That was a maternity hospital ran at the time by nuns. Helm Chase was now a ward within the main area hospital. Indeed, the newspaper was campaigning to save the Helm Chase ward. Perhaps we could help, I suggested. Auction something off, perhaps. Michaela said yes, that would be nice, but she was too wound up in the immediate proceedings to discuss it further. Around 10am it became apparent that a technical hitch had happened, the bluebird had drifted beneath the barge, and the barge would have to be moved out of the way to avoid her colliding with the underside as she was lifted. By now I was really feeling the cold, which had slowly crept into my bones during the hour of standing over the water on the end of the exposed jetty. I walked back up the beach, trying to avoid the gaze of the press and the police, to the Bluebird Tea Rooms and bought myself and Steve a cup of coffee. The view from the window of the tea room was excellent, so I ordered a toasted tea cake and bought a few Donald Campbell postcards and a slab of Kendall mint cake, made mainly of sugar with peppermint flavouring and famous for having been taken to the summit of Everest by Hillary and Tenzing during their famous first ascent. On any other occasion, I would have stayed put and watched the rest of the morning unfold from the window of the warm tea rooms, but this was too important to witness at a distance. I returned to the end of the jetty. The barge was now in the right position, and the orange float bags, which would bring Bluebird K7 to the surface of Coniston for the first time in 34 years, were being inflated. I listened with mounting anticipation to the sound of the pumps on the barge and watched the divers in the water hauling at the blue nylon ropes until at 10.45 the famous blue tail fin of the bluebird appeared above the surface of the water. I was amazed by the fact that it was still blue, that the paint had held under the water for three decades and that the Union flag motif remained almost intact stubbornly evoking the patriotism of the man and of another age. The atmosphere was oddly celebrational and sombre at the same time. Bill was grinning away as only someone can as they see four years of their own hard work come to fruition, hamming it up for the cameras and wearing a flamboyant coloured felt hat, which I'm told he always wears when searching. He looked like a victorious buccaneer jester, beaming away at the assembled media. I had begun to wonder whether the mood was getting a little too flippant to suit the occasion. Any light-heartedness came to a sudden stop, though, as the rest of the craft appeared above water, revealing a shocking mangled mess of metal at the front of her, immediately behind where the cockpit and Donald would have been as she hit the surface of the lake at 300 miles an hour. Suddenly it felt like there were too many people witnessing this. Too many of the wrong people. I include myself. I might have initiated all this, but I felt I had no right to be here, really. Like some uninvited stranger showing up at a famous funeral, looking for autographs and a mention in the media. I watched as Donald's second wife, Tonia Byrne Campbell, 
was ferried to the barge to gain a closer presence to the crash-damaged machine, which was still half-submerged and surrounded by divers, still tugging at the flotation bags and manhandling the bluebird in an attempt to guide her onto the tow trailer and prevent her from colliding with the barge. Tonia looked on for a while. God knows what she felt. What do you feel when you're confronted with the wreckage of a machine that killed your husband 34 years ago? Surprised by a sudden rush of grief? Guilty for not being able to feel enough? Angry for being forced to confront this in the glare of the media? 34 years is a long, long time. The process of guiding Bluebird onto the tow trailer was long and involved. All in all, the divers tugged and held the ropes in the cold water of the lake for a good two hours before, at last, a Land Rover winched the trailer and her precious cargo slowly towards the beach. And there she stood, much bigger than she'd looked in the old photographs. Again, a certain quietness descended the scene for a time, a celebration gave way to introspection, and we all slowly took in the sight before us. From the rear, Bluebird is indistinguishable from a jet fighter. She is almost intact from the cockpit rearwards, as if she'd crashed head-on into a mountainside. I suppose the impact was not dissimilar. As the press took their photographs and clamoured to interview Bill, I chatted to the divers who were very relieved to be out of the water. Even wet-suited, they must have been freezing and exhausted after all their hard physical work. They seemed to me like a really nice bunch of people, friendly, intelligent and down-to-earth free-spirited types, brought together by their enthusiasm for diving and adventure. Bluebird was taken up the beach and locked up inside a boathouse. All the commotion died down as the journalists took their turn to interview Bill and then found a quiet corner to file their stories. Precious photographs were being emailed from laptop computers by cellular phone links to the world's press offices for tomorrow's front pages. So no one really seemed to notice when one of the divers climbed from a small boat holding the nose cone of Bluebird. I recognised the remnants of the two crossed Union flags which once adorned her snout. It was badly distorted and most of the blue paint had gone, but being of aluminium, no corrosion had taken place. I was honoured to be given this to hold, and a Reuters photographer, John Super, took a photograph of me looking along the shoreline and holding what would have been the first thing to hit the water on that fateful January day. For me, a complete circle was closed since the evening in 1967 when I watched the news with my mum and saw that lobster-like machine somersault backwards through the air and the explosion of white on the black-and-white TV screen as she smashed into Lake Coniston. And I wondered why my mum was crying. By this time my heart was heavy and my mind was well and truly blown. I retired to the tea rooms for a coffee and a sandwich, while Steve R. wandered about outside, talking into his mobile phone. On emerging into the daylight, I ran into Bill, who said, Do you want to have a look? Steve and I followed him into the boathouse, and we and the dive team suddenly had Bluebird all to ourselves. 
The outside world was locked out, and for the first time I got to have a private moment with this piece of history. She was still dripping water onto the concrete floor of the boathouse, and amazingly, still oozing jet fuel. The smell of high-octane spirit was overpowering. All that time underwater, maybe there were airlocks, or maybe the water trapped the fuel in some way. After all, spirit is lighter than water, so it would act like an airlock, I suppose. The smell of the fuel only served to further remove the 34 years she'd been under the lake. Suddenly, it felt like no time had passed. At the front end of the wreckage, fastened to one of the cross members of the metal structure, was a half-inch bolt, bent out of shape to almost 90 degrees. Attached to this was a short and torn remnant of seat belt material. This would have been the harness coming up from the floor between Donald's legs, holding him in place. It was the single most disturbing moment of the day for me. I only hope Tonya never noticed it. Ken Norris, Bluebird's designer, had appeared and was still talking to Bill at the rear of the aircraft. I managed to eavesdrop parts of their conversation. Apparently, Bluebird was designed for a maximum speed of 250 miles an hour. Ken was saying he was surprised at the extent to which Bluebird had withstood the crash. I couldn't catch everything he was saying, but he seemed emotionally detached and interested in the machine totally from an engineering standpoint. I guess he'd done his grieving a long time ago, but I still found it strange him seeming so unsentimental. Steve and I emerged from the boathouse to a crowd of people hoping to catch a glimpse inside and made our way back to the car. Our plan was to check out of our hotel and into a hotel in Coniston. We reserved a couple of rooms at the Black Bull Hotel and drove back over to Oldswater where we checked out at the Glenridding Hotel, returning once again across the hills to Coniston. Our welcome at the Black Bull was as warm as any I've ever heard. Sue, the landlady, seemed genuinely pleased to have us and keen to help us. We checked in and ordered dinner in the lounge bar. The walls were adorned with photographs of Campbell's exploits. Even the beer was called Bluebird Ale, and it was excellent. By now I was pretty weary, so I said I'd see Steve in an hour and had a bath while watching Liverpool playing Porto on TV through the open door. Relaxing on the bed in a towel, I answered a knock on the door to find Steve informing me that Bill and all the divers were downstairs in the bar demanding our assistance in celebration. I got dressed and went downstairs to be handed a beer by Bill. We all sat down and tall tales were told of diving on battleships in fjords and submarines from the war. I told them of my chance meeting with Paul Barney, sole British survivor of the Estonia, not long after she sank with almost 1,000 people aboard and his account of his five hours in the Baltic Sea waiting to be rescued. It's quite eerie how many of the big news stories throughout my life have somehow brushed against me personally. I shudder to wonder what will be next. The dive team had dinner at the Black Bull and then we all trooped round the corner to their hotel, the Sun Inn, where Donald himself used to stay. As it turned out, we all had a few beers and talked together quite late into the night. 
However, the whole affair was pleasant and good-natured, and nobody got out of hand. Around half-past eleven, it occurred to Steve and I that perhaps we might be locked out of our hotel. Steve disappeared and returned to confirm that, yes, indeed, the bull was all locked up, and although one of the outside doors was accessible with a safety code, the management had neglected to tell us what it was. Oh dear. There were two emergency telephone numbers on my key fob, so I went to the bar to ask if there was a payphone in the Sun Inn. I was directed through to another room, and as I walked, a distinguished silver-haired lady said, Excuse me, aren't you the chap who wrote the song? It took me a moment to realise that this was Tonia Byrne Campbell. She held out her hand in greeting, and I gently took it, telling her it was an honour to meet her. She looked much more glamorous than her appearance down at the lake that morning, and her heavily accented English reminded me of Zaza Gabor. I asked her where she was from originally, and she told me that she is Belgian, but has spent much time in Italy, England, and now San Diego in the USA. She said that she too is a singer, and quizzed me on the technical difficulties of the melodies of Bert Bacharach and Michel Legrand. She asked if I might send her a copy of Out of This World. I promised I would, and she gave me her address. She explained that she had objected to the raising of the bluebird for fear of what else might be found within the wreck. Fortunately, there appears to be no trace of her husband. She seemed in a bright mood, and I had the impression that she'd recovered from the harrowing experience of the day's earlier events. During our conversation, the few people in her party rose to leave, and so I wished her good night and reaffirmed my promise to send her the song. I returned to the task of trying to find the access code to our hotel, so that Steve and I would be able to sleep tonight. Steve eventually sorted it out, and I wrote the code down. I drank a little more and chatted a little more with the divers and the BBC crew who were there making a documentary about the whole project. We would love to make the music to accompany this. I was wanting to talk to the director, Mike Rossiter, to persuade him he could trust us to provide him with a great soundtrack. But he was holed up in the corner of the bar with his friends, and I didn't want to crash in on his leisure time. I managed to speak to him briefly before we were all thrown out of the bar at midnight, and he gave me his address so I could send him some music. I made my way down the lane in the rain, back to the Black Bull, an apt name, as when I got to the door with the coded entry lock on it, it was too dark to read the letters and numbers on the buttons. I stood there like a blind man reading Braille with my fingertips for at least ten minutes, hoping my eyes would become accustomed to the pitch darkness enough to see something, but to no avail. In the end, I think I got it right by fluke, and in a state of much relief, made my way through the darkness inside and upstairs to my room. Before I went to sleep, I thought I'd better try and write down what had happened today. When I finally closed my eyes and drifted into sleep, it must have been nearly dawn. A sad tune hummed silently in my head. Only love will turn you round. Only love will turn you round. <laughs>
And we're back. <laughs> and and with us, as H alluded to, we have Bill Smith. Hiya, Bill. How are you? Hello, I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I'll give you a round of applause, but yes, there's I only one yeah. of us. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I say we have with us. He's actually been with us all the time. He's had to listen to the first 20 minutes of Dribble um, and stay very well behaved. But yes, you're joining us from the from the northeast. I, believe. I am, yes. Um, with the best part of a pipe organ in the background. Yeah. Or a church organ. Yeah, well, I had to put something on that wall and there wasn't a big enough picture and, and it just a pipe organ seemed the, the logical thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I got a pipe organ and stuck it on the wall. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, biggest organ in the village. There we have it. Have and, it. and there's the title for the episode. <laughs> biggest right organ there. in the village. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, we'll have that. We'll have biggest organ in the village. <laughs> you can have that for free. Can you? If anybody moved in with a bigger organ, would you have to move? Uh, no, but I'm, I might have feelings of inadequacy. Right. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Hasn't happened right. yet. Right. Okay. Um, as, obviously, we've just heard about the day, um, but we're going to go behind the diary reading for a bit more information of the day. But we need to start with a bit of a bit of background. So, Bill. It's, it, the diary reading alludes to the fact that you, you were aware of the song, which means I'm going to have to ask the obvious thing. How did you become aware of the song? Are you a Marillion fan? Um, I was always a, a Marillion fan because um, when I was at school, I was, you know, we were of an age where you painted the, an album cover on the flap of your haversack. Um, and I remember all these haversacks lined up with school and there was one with magpies and jesters all over it. And I thought, what the hell is that? I like the artwork. And I captured the kid who wore it on his back at home time and said, what's all that? And, he, and I went to his house and listened to some records. So, yeah, I was, I was always a bit of a Marillion fan anyway. Um, and then, you know, I, I carried on when Steve arrived and still am to this day. So, yeah, I've, I've, always, been a, I've always been a fan. So I was bound to hear the, the record, the song anyway, hmm. for that reason. I must ask before we go any further, was that an Army and Navy stall bag that we painted on? Because we all had those Army and Navy stall bags when we were at... It was, yeah, it was just a standard haversack, but it was, it was one of those... ones. Yeah, I was a bit of a geeky kid at school. You see, and everybody's painting you know, motorhead and, and things on their bags, and I managed to paint something like grease on mine and got helplessly ridiculed. So I was... <laughs> tell me more, tell me more, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I even got a fake leather jacket to go and see the film when it came out, you know. So, yeah. I, but, so when I saw Jesters and my pies, I thought that was a lot cooler than my pink grease have a stack, and, and that was the end of that. So, yeah. Before your time, of course, but yeah, I remember it. Well, I had Dennis Law on my satchel, but I spelt it wrong. <laughs> and and having having carefully carved it in the leather, there was no going back. <laughs> so I had Dennis Law spelt incorrectly on my satchel the whole time <laughs> I was at school, which made me feel like a bit of a dick, to be honest. Uh, makes me feel better with my grease bag. <laughs> I think we decorated ours with Tipex. I think Tipex uh, was the main the, the main kind of... Right. Know, or was that I wish I'd done. I wish I'd done Dennis with Tipex because he could have been fixed. But as it was, well, how do you how do you get rid of Tipex with Tipex? You scrape it off, don't do you? With a knife or something? I don't know. We were posh. We had Humbrol enamels. Oh, oh right. Okay, Airfix paint. Yeah, if you put enough on, the, the, the top of your haversack would go shiny and glossy. It wasn't canvas looking anymore. It was like the yeah. like a panel on a car. It was beautiful. Right. That was a lot of work. Right. You can see now how Bill's just 
self-made man, can't yes, you? Because yes, he, can. he was on to a lot of shit yeah, early yeah. on. Even, even early on. <laughs> it's a shame there wasn't a Dragon's Den back then. <laughs> anyway, but but so so you're you're a bit of a fan. Obviously, you you you, you get um, afraid of sunlight. You hear the track. I mean, I mean, is the way it's portrayed right? Does that start a fascination, or have you got it, or you kind of got a fascination with it anyway? No, it was completely off my radar. I wasn't in the least bit interested. Um, it was a perfect storm because I was really into my diving at the time and, and rec location in particular. And um, we'd normally get to about September, October. That would be the end of the season and that would be the end of that till the following April. And a lot of the guys I dived with were from Manchester, so I wouldn't see them right over the winter. It's not like I could meet them down the local. And I came back from a diving trip towards the end of the year and my girlfriend had left, which wasn't unexpected. Uh, but she did it while I was away on a diving trip. So I got back from the trip and and there, are, you know, the, the house is half empty. She'd taken all that stuff, as you might imagine. Um, and she'd taken the little things that were like, a, you know, a punch to the guts. I went to make a cup of tea. There's no kettle. I went to, you know, warm a tin of soup. There's no microwave. So I'm sat in a house with the dog, which was pretty much all I had left. And I had this album, which I'd bought the week before. And this was in a day when an album was a thing, you know, and he got a box with a disc and some notes and some pretty pictures. And I got all this out and I, I put it on and I just sat on the floor with the dog. And I got the track five out of this world. And in the middle of it was a, a recorded loop, which I didn't have a clue what it was. I thought it was police radio or you know, something like that. I later found out what it was. But I, I, did, I couldn't hear what was being said on this little recorded bit. So I got the lyric sheet out and it didn't say but it was all this stuff about blue and bird and 300 miles an hour. And, and my immediate thought was shipwreck, little shipwreck, English Lake, not far from Manchester, get the lads on the phone. And that was the first thing. And the second thing was I went to see a pal of mine in the morning who had a, a bookshop and he sold rare and vintage books. And he had a book there called The Record Breakers by Leo Villa, Campbell's Mechanic. And it's the only book that says this. It's the, I've read all the books since, as you might imagine. But it's the only one that says the wreck is in 140 feet of water. Well, 140 feet of water was home from home for me at the time. That was easy. All I had to do was find it. So it, it was just that perfect storm of sitting on my own, feeling a bit miserable, having a new album, um, not seeing me mates, and, and just all the little pieces dropped into place such that I could see me buddies, have a few beers, look for a shipwreck, and it was just a bit of an uplifting thing then. Um, not a clue about Campbell or any of his story. Really. That came later. So, how, so when you go about finding it, then I mean, you don't just pop over one afternoon and think, right? Well, we've got a few hours. We'll, you know, that should do us. How difficult can it be? I mean, how complex is it? Well, you kind of get yourself into the mindset of yes, we'll pop over for a couple of hours and do it. And how hard can it be? And, and we were very, very good at it. You know, we're, we're very good at finding wrecks using magnetometers, which is just a very sensitive metal detector, um, imaging wrecks with sonar, this kind of thing. And we fancied ourselves as, you know, we've got this down. And, and we went over to Coniston and found precisely nothing. Um, we didn't take it that seriously to start with because it was more about seeing the guys and having some beers and sitting around a log fire. You know, that was more enticing than, than wet drizzle. Um, so we did quite a lot of that but the more it wouldn't be found the more annoyed we got at us and it because it wouldn't be found 
and we, we put more and more effort into it until we did get it. But it was four years later when we found it. Because mm. it's got to be smaller, I guess, than some of the things you look for. Um, it, it's, I mean, we've, we've found much tinier things. You know, we, we, we did work, I mean, a lot of what we did was, was recovering bodies, um, which are very hard to find because they're not metallic. And sonar goes straight through them, and they're not very big, and they tend to deteriorate over time. So we found much smaller things, and we had this sinking on video, which we don't have for any other wreck we ever found, and it was in a confined area. We still couldn't find it. So it was. It turned out to be quite challenging when it shouldn't have been. But we just kept at it. We just kept going. You don't give in, you can't fail. And and what unlocked it in the end was it was it just literally that thing of like you say, not giving in, or was there a little kind of when you found it of, ah, well, that explains why it took so long? Well, what happened was we, we'd imagined that we'd find it straight away with a magnetometer, which <clears throat> one of the first things we did find in the lake with the magnetometer in 140 feet of water was a wheel off a wagon. So, you know, that's the kind of detail, you know, yeah. and size of a target you can find reliably and accurately. So having found a wheel off a wagon, we then couldn't find you know, at least 20 feet of bolt. And it transpired that it was the, this, the metal it was made of, although it had steel in the engine and steel in the frame, it had no magnetic signature. And, right. and we'd looked in exactly the right place um, with the magnetometer, hadn't found it, and just led ourselves astray with maybe it's there, maybe it's here, maybe it's further north, further south, further east, further west. And we, we'd abandoned the original search area, which turned out to be deadly accurate. And we spent a lot of time looking where it wasn't. And it wasn't until we, we, we sat down and went right back through everything and went back with the sonar. And there it was, exactly where we thought it should be. Mm. So it was our fault, really. We just got sidetracked, which is easy to do. And it's a fair assumption to think it would be magnetic. Well, when we finally had an exact location for it and we, we pulled the magnetometer over it, its magnetic signature was smaller than the wagon wheel. Right. So that makes you think, well, what I found here is something smaller than a wagon wheel. You know, we had a, we had a wagon wheel as a datum. We knew what that was. And, we're, you know, you see a smaller type, and you get magnetic rocks and all sorts. You know, granite tends to be magnetic, and you get background magnetism and this kind of thing. So a little blip on the screen didn't mean a thing. We thought we knew everything about the magnetometer, and we learned a, a tough lesson on that one. Mm. Yeah. So wherein starts the link then between you and the band what what prompted the comms well it was kind of a, it was a little bit of let's do this again because way back in the in the in the pre-steve era um fish was touring and he wasn't playing newcastle so i thought well, this isn't good enough so i rang him on the telephone on a friday night because again when an album was a thing um, there was a phone number on the back of the album sleeve. So I rang this number on a Friday night and this Scottish chap answered. And I said, yeah, what's going on? This isn't good enough. Fish isn't playing Newcastle. Why not? Um, and, and he'd answered his own phone. And he went, oh, well, I'm just not. And I was a bit taken so, aback. So he'd got his phone number on the back of the album. He did have, yeah. It was Funny Farm Recording Studios on the back of the album. Right. And he answered his own phone at six o'clock on a Friday evening, foolishly. And he got me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I said, well, this is no good. Um, you're not playing Newcastle. And I've never told this story. You're going to like this one. Um, so I said, look, if I get the venue and I get the PA, will you come and play it? And he went, well, yeah, if you want. So 
It was a bit more Scottish and sweary than that, but that's essentially what happened. <laughs> so uh, there was a place called the Riverside, which would host kind of medium-sized gigs. So I went to see the Riverside and said, oh, you know, I want this date because fish is coming. And I went, really? And what they did was they, they printed about a million, you know, his, his little circular logo, little spiky fish logo thing. Um, we got that printed on just cheap paper. Um, we got thousands of these things, and it said, you know, Fish Riverside, whatever the date was. And you guys were playing Newcastle City Hall on the Brave Tour. So we bought tickets for the Brave Tour and went to the City Hall. And in the middle of the set, we all went down to the toilets. And obviously the girls took their side, we took our side. And we just absolutely saturated the toilets with these little promo things for Fish's gig the following week. You cheeky bugger. Exactly, yep, yep. So needless to say, by the next morning, the Riverside was sold out. So, so I rang Fish and said, right, um, sold your gig out. <laughs> and it was, it was brilliant. It was really good. So, of course, when we get into this Bluebird thing, and we're about to lift the wreck. I thought, well, let, let's do that again. Let's get someone on the phone and, and, you know, because it's all your fault, Mr. H. Um, and if there's going to be any drowning and suffering and, and things going wrong, I, I want to be there to, to feel the pain. Um, so, <laughs> so I can't remember how I did it. I can't remember who I got in touch with where. Um, but I got a message anyway. They said, come and have a look because I think you're going to like this. And I, I suspect I tracked Rothers down, but I can't remember how I did it. Um, I, I think it was Rothers. Yeah. yeah. I think he came and told me, you know, do you fancy coming up? And I went, yeah. yeah. And we uh, we jumped in his car. Yeah. Came up. It's fairly simple with Rothers. If you just if you just get into if you put a message somewhere to say there's a new guitar thing and you can have one if you want, it'll or ring a you free, back. Or a free dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's in like Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Steve. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> so you, you got Rothers. Yeah. And, and I guess Rothers at that point, what, got back in touch with you or got in touch with H? I, I really can't remember because it was all a little bit of a blur. You know, we're about to go and pull a ton and a half of scrap metal out of a lake under the, you know, the, the gaze of the press. We're more consumed with ropes and lift bags and mm. divers and gas bottles and things like this. And in the middle of it, I'm, I'm pulling together all the, the kind of additional threads. And this was one of them. So I can't remember how it actually happened, but I remember getting word, yep, yeah, you know, we're coming up for a look. So so that was good. But I had to then go back to, you know, the, the logistics of a, of a salvage operation mm-hmm. after that. So you actually, you met for the first time on that day, is that right? Or did you met yeah. yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, on the... Yeah. On the um... The second, you know, as I said in the diary piece, police wouldn't let us through the first roadblock, and and eventually they they gave up arguing with us, and they said, well, the bloke on the second roadblock won't let you through anyway, and we said, well, you know, let's give let's give it a go. So we went, we got a bit closer to the lake, and then Bill was coming up the road to meet us, so that's when we met. That's when we met. See, I had it in my head. You, you kind of, it was it was a bit a bit more, you know. I, don't, I hate to say organised, but I thought you'd met a few times before and I thought there'd been a whole bit of backstory. I don't know why I thought that. We've met a few times since, yeah, but but not not before, no. Right, okay. And there was a fella there who... This guy was a photographer from one of the big agencies and 
somebody you told him, I don't, and I don't know who, but somebody had told him this was going to be some kind of exclusive. So he turned up in the morning and said, oh, I need to be on your boat. Well, my boat was rammed. And I said, well, you can't because, you know, we've got a full crew and that's that. <clears throat> and he went, oh, no, no, I, I'm such and such from whatever agency and I have an exclusive and I need to be on your boat. I was told I'm going on your boat. I said, well, you're not. Sorry. So he, he huffed off because I wouldn't let him on the boat. Anyway, you know, we'll get a couple of hours into this and we are our own jetty all roped off and there's rudders on the end of it with about 18 cameras snapping away. And this, this photographer guy comes storming up to me and started shouting at me that his exclusive was knackered because I'd hired my own photographer. And I had my very own photographer on the very end of the jetty where he wasn't allowed. And this had completely wrecked his job and blah, 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 blah. And I let him go a bit and I said, uh, now he's not a photographer, he's a rock musician. Why don't you go and ask him? And <laughs> that, was the, that was the last we heard of him. He just evaporated at that point. So <laughs> that did tickle me. Got rid of him nicely, thank you. <laughs> and what other abiding memories of the, have you got of the day I mean obviously it must be a bit of a blur but what are the bits that when you think about it just pop in um, one of them is we I mean we were supposed to we are going to lift the boat on the weekend this was the plan so we got it off the bottom on I think the Tuesday and then we got a call from um, DEFRA or whatever because remember this was in the middle of the foot and mouth crisis um, and they got into us and said, you're not lifting this at the weekend. We'll have a million visitors to the park. You need to either get it out of there before the weekend or you need to put it back. Well, putting it back's not an option because lift bags are one-way traffic. That would have been very difficult. So we decided we'd get it out on the Thursday instead. <coughs> I think it was the Thursday. And there was a reporter guy who kept asking um, when it was coming out, and we wouldn't tell him because we weren't allowed to create this influx. And he said, well, look, it's my daughter's fifth birthday tomorrow. I've got to go back to London. Um, is it coming out tomorrow? And this was on the Wednesday night. And I couldn't decide if this was a ploy to wheedle it out of me or not. So I let him go. Anyway, I let him get about an hour down the road to see if he was for real. And, and then I found his mate and said, has he gone? He said, oh, yeah. He said, well, I said, we better get him back. So this poor guy got an hour down the road, had to turn around and announce he wasn't going to his daughter's party after all and come screaming back up the road. But of course, now I'd let the cat out the bag. So one o'clock in the morning, we tipped out the pole. And if you if you watch the, the documentary made at the time, that's us in the you know in the middle of the night in the dark. And here we go, job to do. We've just come out of the pub. Um and, and we got back aboard the uh, aboard the barge, but on the way to the barge, it was one of those really, really dark moonlit nights. And I walked smack into the side of a Sky News truck because it was so shiny and white, it just reflected the sky. And I just walked into the side of it, I had no idea it was there. Um, and it, it turned out that by one o'clock in the morning, it was like the Super Bowl down there. Um, and we went down to the went down to the barge because it was all moored in the middle of the lake, two and a half miles down the lake. And all week, the wind had blown straight out the north, um, which meant that if we loosened the moorings off, we'd just blow further away. We'd just blow away from where we're trying to be. And as we started to loose the moorings off on the barge, the wind veered all the way around where we worked and came out of the south and it blew us all the way up the lake. Hmm. And I was, I was so knackered. It was, a, it was a good couple of hours to come up the lake slowly. So I lay on the wheelhouse roof and went to sleep. There was nowhere else to be. Um, and, and I had a mobile phone at the time, which it wasn't as commonplace as it is now. And I might have one missed call or two missed calls. 
And I woke up and it was daylight and we'd nearly got to, the, to where we're going to recover the boat. And I had about 150 missed calls and I'd never seen anything like it. So that was kind of the, that whole episode from telling the journalist we weren't, telling his mate we weren't, having the wind veer around to get to the beach. That was, that's, I remember that quite well. The bit when we got to the beach, um, is, it's all a, that's all a blur, apart from one episode where we started the salvage and it, it went slightly wrong and we had to reposition and have another go at it. It was a nothing, but it looked like quite a drama because we're all shouting and running around. Um, but it was a nothing. And then I swam ashore and there's a whole line of reporters and cameras and radio people and all sorts. And as I walked past them, I went, well, that's it for today, guys. We're going to have to try again tomorrow. And I kept a perfectly straight face and all looked disappointed and started putting my lens caps on and muttering and finding their coats. And I got just to the end of the line and went, only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing that. Um, otherwise, controlled panic it was. So what about your memories of the day, H? My memories? Um, well, I remember it being bloody cold. Uh, and I, I remember standing on the end of that jetty waiting for something to happen for ages and then and then going back to the calf uh for toasted tea cakes and hot chocolates Good and shout. then and then wandering back down again and um I, rem- I i remember seeing the tail fin break the water um you know and bit, that was an amazing amazing moment um made more so by the fact that it was still blue and you could still see all the you could still see the crossed union flags on the on it and um thinking isn't that extraordinary it's been it's been under the water for what 30 30 35 years however long it was and uh, and yet it's still blue uh you can still see all the paintwork and and the and the rip uh, the 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 rear of the machine became visible first, and it was intact. And it wasn't until the 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 front of the machine appeared, which was completely mangled and gone, um, that you know you suddenly became aware of. You know, I, I'm sure Bill was aware all along, but but as a as a as a, as an independent viewer who just turned up, um, I was suddenly you know, aware all, all over again of of the, the massive impact uh, front on that um, that the machine and, and Don uh, must have must have very, very briefly endured. Um, and so that was that was just a you know, a, a, a sh- not a shock, but, but it was really moving. It was really moving, and it was really impressive. Um, and the fact that that Bill had managed to recover this machine from a quote bottomless unquote lake, which is what Coniston was always called back in the sixties, um, was was extraordinary in itself. Um, so, I, so, so particularly the tailfin break in the water was a huge moment for me uh, because I'd written this song, you know, about my mum watching the news and wondering why she was crying, um, you know, because I was so young that all those things was sort of would just wash past me. I, I wouldn't really know what was going on or what, but I'd noticed that my mum was upset. Um and so many, many, many years later, I just wrote a couple of lines on a 
on a notepad, you know, 300 miles an hour on water. And you're, um, in fact, I, in your purpose-built machine, no one dared to call a boat, which is rubbish because everybody called it a boat <laughs> as it goes, um, uh, screaming blue and all of this, out of this world. And then I, I just thought you had it there for a second, Don. That was the last line I had on my little notepad. We didn't use that because it's a bit flippant. But he did have it there for a second, you know. Um, and um, and so then it, it, it expanded much later. And once we got working on the song, I expanded it into a, more of a love song, really, about the girl, you know, the girl he left behind mm. sort of thing. Um, who was Tonya, you know, I was, again fortunate and privileged to meet during during that day uh and then even more more privileged to meet gina after that his daughter who uh, was uh, much better value down the pub than tonya uh, i think i think everyone would agree gina's a character um so she was great fun and uh, it was Gina who eventually phoned me up at home and asked me if I'd consider singing it at the funeral, uh, which was another diary day much later, um, which happened to coincide with nine eleven. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was an auspicious day. Follows you around. Uh, one quick oh, the other thing I remembered, of course, oh, was was being invited into the into that uh, boathouse. Once, uh, once Bill and the team had had, had moved uh, the Bluebird into into the boathouse away from the glare and the public of, of all the uh, media folk, um, we were invited into the boathouse, and, and Rothers and Bill and I were uh, suddenly alone with with her, which was an incredibly privileged moment. Mm. Um, and Ken Norris, I think he was in there. Yeah, he was, ch- was chatting to you, wasn't he? Yeah. He uh, was. So, so it was kind of over, over here, ear wigging what what Bill and Ken were were saying. You know, they were talking, they were talking technicals, um, whilst whilst I was fixated on this bent bolt that would have been uh, holding the harness between Don's legs, thinking that must have made his eyes water. <laughs> you know, albeit briefly. One thing, Bill, did you have to ask permission to raise this or is salvage something that you can just, what's the deal there? It's not salvage on inland waterways. What happened was that, you know, our intention was just to just to find this wreck, Fine, yeah. just to find it. You know, there was no intention. But, I mean, initially, divers being divers, you know, to say, if you give a diver three ball bearings, you lose one, break one and steal one. Um, so... You know, initially, oh, shipwreck. What you do with shipwrecks is you span our bits off and you take them home. So, you know, at the beginning, we thought, here's a shipwreck. But it soon became very clear to everyone involved, this wasn't the wreck you do that to, you know. Um, so, well, you shouldn't do it any wreck, really. But I was taught diving by ex-salvage divers, and that's that's what we were in there for. So, anyway. Um, got a whiff, got yeah. a whiff of piracy about it, really. Oh, so definitely. Sounds a bit like it. Uh, you like walking past the jewellery shop and someone smashed the doors off, you know, you'd kind of, ooh, you'd stick your face in for a look, wouldn't you? Um, but anyway, we uh, the intention was just to go and have a look and then leave because although we'd made our minds up early on, you know, that it was a case of look, but don't touch, 
we couldn't rely on the rest of the diving community to do that. We knew it would be pillaged. So the plan was to do this very quietly and secretly. Um, so we concocted this story about someone having released lobsters into Coniston many years ago. And these lobsters had, had adapted to live in fresh water and started to breed. And there was now a subspecies of lobsters that we called Coniston lobsters uh, that came with the Ice Age along with the Arctic char. And people were buying into this, you know. So that they were more intrigued with the lobsters than with what we were doing. But that story wouldn't last. So then we said we're actually surveying Arctic char, which do live in the, in the lake. And we managed to um, video a phenomenon where the char hibernate in little hollows in the bottom, um, quite by accident. And I got a call from the president of the Char Society or something, wanting to know if we'd actually captured this on video and could he have a tip. So the char theory became very plausible. But what happened was... Um, we'd actually been asked by Gina to find her dad, and that was really what we're doing. And I got involved with two important people, one of whom I'm going to see this week, actually, um, a guy called Steve Moss. Now, he was a, a lead investigator with the Air Accidents Investigation Branch at Farnborough, and Steve knew all about aircraft structure crashing, which is essentially what we're dealing with. And there was another fellow called Air Commodore Dr. Tony Cullen, um, who I, I rang him up. I'd seen him on telly, so I didn't usually manage to get him on the phone. Um, and I said, how, how do I address an air commodore doctor? And he went, how about Tony? So I was working with Tony and I was working with Steve and they basically said, look, the best way we can do this is to lift the cockpit section and then we can have a proper look at it and see the order in which it broke up and where the bits went and all of this kind of thing. And this will inform the best place to look for Donald. So... I said to Gina, you know, can we pull the front end out of the water for investigative purposes? Bearing in mind, it was in many pieces over quite an area. So we hoovered it all up and put it back together as they do with air crashes where they assemble them around the mesh and have a look. Um, and in the process of doing this, one of our divers managed to injure himself. He uh, managed to starve himself of oxygen and land himself in the hospital. And because of this, word got out what we were doing. Uh, and, and Gina looked at this and said, oh, it's quite dangerous, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. You know, we're all mixed gas, closed circuit diving in 140 feet of water. There's, there's safer pursuits. So we're basically told, right, we don't want anyone getting injured on account of this wreck. Clear the whole place. Get the whole lot out of the water. So that was how come we ended up salvaging the wreck. Um, and it, it wasn't about, you know, we didn't go there to do that. But it became a byproduct. We ended up with two tons of dripping scrap as a byproduct of, of looking for the body, which, of course, we eventually found. So that was how that worked. I think we should probably wrap it up there. Um, thank you, Bill, for finding the time and for okay, giving yeah. us a bit more uh, info on the day. Um, it's already a very evocative diary reading before a load of, of the other information. So that is, that is wonderful. Uh, you're very kind uh, for popping along. Um, I'm just... I'm just girding my loins now for for pearls a singer um, <laughs> so uh I, I feel calm it down and, and, and you know a bit of reverence now as, yeah. as steve h takes on elkie brooks i wouldn't give that too big a build-up if i were you and right I, it's a bit late now it is <laughs> maybe, maybe doing that earlier would have helped <laughs> I'll so, get Chris Neal in to produce it. We, yeah, we absolutely, yeah. That's yeah. what it needs. Chris, if you're listening to this, it's a bit late. So, actually, you might have had a phone call by now. You, you fancy doing a week's work for nothing? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He'll do that. 
<laughs> He's got nothing else to do. Right, folks, uh, we will see you next week for 102. Um, before you have a bit of Elky. Um, <laughs> and I will wish both Bill. Uh, thanks, Bill. Take care. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Enjoyed that. Good fun. That, yeah, thank you very much, Bill. Good to see you. Pearl's a singer. She stands up when she plays the piano. In a nightclub Pearl's a singer She sings songs For the lost And the lonely Her job is Entertaining folks Singing songs Telling jokes In a nightclub Pearl's a singer She works hard Just to get Your attention I know the feeling Since the last one There have been No subscribers to mention so big thanks to Bill and Don See you later, everyone I'm off to Poland Here I come Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.